Wow. Has anybody noticed that it's hot? I mean, with all the quarantining and social distancing, it seems like the fact that it's hot has gone largely unnoticed, but it's hot. And I'm pretty sure it's not just me. Sorry, I guess we're introducing a new segment on the Everyday Hope podcast called Whining with Pastor Dave. Yeah, sorry, but it's hot. All right, well, welcome to the Everyday Hope podcast, Summer Heat Edition. On our last episode, we introduced the book of Revelation, talked about what kind of book this really is, and an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter. Or to put it another way, a letter to the churches revealing the truth about the judgment and redemption to come, designed to encourage suffering people to endure through hard times. I think that's a pretty good way to say it. And in the bonus episode, if you had a chance to listen, no, I'm not going to ask if you did. In that episode, we read through chapter one to get a feel for where we are and where we're going. Today, we're diving into chapter two and the first of the seven churches. But before we talk about that first church, maybe we should talk about why seven churches? Or better yet, why these seven churches? All good questions. You guys are on point today. So remember that this is a circular letter. It was not addressed to a single church, but was meant to be carried from church to church and shared with those congregations. Now, I want you to find a map of the ancient Near East. You can Google map of seven churches in Revelation. Go ahead, hit pause. I'll just wait for you. Okay, you got it? Now, you're looking at what would become Western Turkey. And what you see is that the seven cities listed in chapter 2 and 3 form a kind of a horseshoe-shaped route through southwestern Asia Minor. This was a communication and trade route that was widely used and would have made it realistic for folks who delivered the letter to move from city to city along this route. But why seven churches? Well, In Hebrew literature, numbers are highly symbolic, and seven is one of the biggies. It symbolizes completion and perfection. Seven churches is a symbolic way to use those particular churches as representatives of all the churches. So the admonitions and encouragements written to those seven are meant for the whole church. Another way to put it is, while John is given a vision for the whole church, he writes his apocalyptic prophecy to those seven churches in Asia Minor. So, understanding things about those churches will help us understand God's message to us. With me? Now, each church has its own section, and each section follows a kind of formula. And that formula can be broken down into seven sections, which are basically the same for all the churches. Nerd! The first section is the destination. John says, to the angel of the church in. This is how he identifies each church. Second comes the command to write. All seven contain the imperative verb, write. He says, to the angel in the church of blank, write. Third comes a saying that's a little bit weird for us, but it's a core part of Old Testament prophecy. It's the quote unquote, thus says section, right? In the Old Testament, we would have heard, thus says the Lord, right? Here, John says, these are the words of. Again, that's in all seven sections. And fourth comes the description of the speaker. Now, we know that the speaker is Jesus, but each section is a little bit different. They're all describing Jesus, but in a way that's unique and meaningful to the specific church. You'll see what I mean in a little bit when we talk about Ephesus. Then there's a weird section called the I know section. Basically, this is Jesus telling the church, I know this stuff about you guys. Sometimes it's good stuff and sometimes it's not. This is followed by the arrangement section. 
It's a weird name, I know, but it needs to cover a lot of ground. This is this is basically the section where Jesus lays out some stuff. It's it's the meat of his proclamation to the specific church. Sometimes it's an admonition. Sometimes it's an acknowledgement of their faithfulness. Sometimes it's an encouragement. It's different for each church, and it sets up the final section, which is the proclamation section. And it always begins and ends with a phrase very similar to, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And no, you don't have to memorize these. But as we talk about each church, I'll remind you of the components of the formula and use them as a framework for understanding the message to that church. All right, let's get into the letter of the church at Ephesus. Now, I have to tell you a funny story. When I taught Revelation to a group of high school students, I started this lesson with a 10-question quiz. I asked them a bunch of questions I was pretty sure they couldn't answer, like, list the seven formal disciplines of systematic theology. Explain the difference between transubstantiation and consubstantiation in communion theory, and how those theories differ from the teachings of both Calvin and Zwingli. Name the first seven ecumenical councils with their dates, and describe the primary issue addressed at each. Now, remember, these poor kids thought this was a graded quiz, and as it went on, I could tell from the looks on their faces, they were trying to figure out how they could drop my class. But eventually, a couple started smirking. You know, somewhere around question six, it was like they figured out I was just messing with them, right? But it wasn't torture for torture's sake. I had a point. I wanted them to start thinking about whether or not knowing the right answers to deep theological questions mattered and how much it mattered, right? Not necessarily suggesting that you need to know this stuff to be a Christian, but trying to set them up for the dilemma in the Ephesian church in Revelation. Obviously, that silly quiz was designed to be funny, but the issue at stake in Ephesus was not funny. It was an issue of sound doctrine and what it means to be a good Christian, right? What is Christianity really all about? Let's start by reading these verses in the framework of our seven-part structure to see how the message to Ephesus fits this formula. First, the destination. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, the destination is John's home church in this case. Then the command to write. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. And then comes the thus says section. These are the words of. And then we get that description of Jesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which is cool and it reminds us of chapter one, right? John saw Jesus among the lampstands, holding the seven stars in his hands. Those were the angels of the seven churches and the lampstands were the seven churches. So Jesus is not just among the churches, he also has authority over them, right? Remember that from chapter one? So that's who's speaking in this message. Then comes the I know section. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. Okay, all that sounds pretty good, right? But wait for the arrangement in verse 4. He says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay, that sounds serious. Then the final proclamation. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life, 
which is in the paradise of God. Okay, so the message to the church in Ephesus can be a little bit confusing. First, they're good, then they're bad, right? Well, let's start off with what they're doing right. So the ancient city of Ephesus was focused on two religious cults. First, it was the seat of the worship of the Roman emperors. And the church there was persecuted for refusing to worship the emperor. And second, Ephesus was also the seat of the cult of Artemis, the goddess of nature and the hunt. And the church was also persecuted for refusing to worship her. The entire city was clamoring for Christians to compromise their beliefs. But the church in Ephesus refused. They refused to tolerate evildoers. They refused to tolerate false prophets and teachers. They obeyed scripture and testing the spirits to see if they were from God. And they rejected any false spirit or doctrine. They knew right from wrong and they stuck to it. If they were around today, they'd be the church that refuses to compromise their stance on sexual purity, that clings fiercely to the authority of scripture, that maintains the rites and rituals of the faith with precision and accuracy. These people would be in church every week, come rain or come shine, and they would know right and wrong and the difference between them. So what in the world could Jesus have against a church like that? Well, before we answer that question, let's first review who is speaking to the church. In John's vision, the one who speaks, Jesus, is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands. This description of Jesus declares two things. First, that Jesus is in authority. He holds the seven spirits, the seven angels of the churches, the very spirit of the church itself. He's not just a divine messenger. He's not some weird Gnostic or neo-Gnostic deity. He's not just a good teacher. Here he stands in all his glory, very God of very God, and Lord over the church. That's who speaks to the church at Ephesus. And second, it declares Jesus' presence among the churches. He walks among them. He is here with us and among us. In many cases, this knowledge is meant to comfort and encourage us, to give us hope in times of despair and strength in times of trial. But it also tells us that he sees all that we do and don't do. He knows our deeds because he walks among the churches. So when Jesus says that the Ephesian church has lost its love, he's not speculating, guessing, using intuition, or reporting what he was told. Jesus has firsthand knowledge. With me? So what does Jesus have against the Ephesus church? Well, I took a snippet from a church website once, and I want you to know I I put the word church in quotes because I don't consider this place to be or represent the church in any way. But the message was so vile, I don't even want to read it. It's all about proclaiming God's hatred on evildoers, having set themselves up as the judges of who and who is not an evildoer. Now, we know that there are large sections of society that are living what the Bible would consider a sinful lifestyle. You wouldn't have to look far, either inside or outside the church, to find and accuse sinners, right? But that raises a question. How do we as the church approach other people? Are we loving? Are we loving as long as you obey the rules and interpret them the same way we do? Or are we people who express God's hatred and root for their destruction? You see, we get into a very gray area when we start focusing on how to enforce the rules. The water is very murky. I believe the commands of Christ are first and foremost for me. I need to decide how I will approach those rules for myself in my life, right? But there are, have been, and will be organizations that decide that the rules are not for them and instead consider themselves God's special prosecutors, called upon to enforce those rules for everyone else. 
even people outside the church. There are churches all over the place who have made themselves the champions of God's holiness. They are sticklers for the rules, and they adhere rigidly to sound doctrine, and they make it their business to point out those who fail. Now, let me be clear. Sticking to sound doctrine is not a bad thing, obviously, because Jesus praises the church for it. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers, and he praises them for holding up under persecution. The problem is there's a but in this equation. Remember, the issue raised about the church at Ephesus was sound doctrine, but what's at stake here, both for them and us, is what it means to be the church, right? At the end of the passage, Jesus threatens to remove their lampstand, and a lampstand is a symbol for a church, so it means they would no longer be the church. This is serious, right? So what does it mean to be his church? A true follower of the way. And posed as it is in this message to the Ephesian church, I think the question amounts to this. Is sound doctrine all that is required to be followers of Jesus? And the answer seems to be no, right? After praising them for adherence to sound doctrine, Jesus says to the church, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. This church has clung to sound doctrine with a passion, but they're in danger of losing their status as the church having their lampstand removed. Why? Well, there's one piece of sound doctrine that the church at Ephesus, and maybe a lot of modern churches too, have forgotten. Ironically, it's the one piece of doctrine that Jesus Christ himself told us was the most important thing to do. Love. In Matthew 22, 36-40, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment, right? And this is how he responds. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. See, the most important thing we can do is love. Love God with all of our being and love our neighbor as ourselves. Or the way I like to interpret this, love God enough to obey him and love others enough to serve them. So maybe we can say that clinging to sound doctrine is one way we love God enough to obey him. But what about the other thing, loving our neighbor? We're also supposed to do that. And who is our neighbor? Well, according to Jesus, it's everyone. Jesus was also asked this question, and he answered it by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. In that story, Jesus used perhaps the single most repulsive person of that day, a Samaritan, a half-breed heretic who didn't know God properly, worship him correctly, or understand scripture. Jesus said, that guy is your neighbor. Love him. That's the love of Jesus. The one who disagrees with you. The one who makes your blood boil. The one who doesn't deserve love. That person is also your neighbor. Ouch. And if all the law and the prophets hang on that commandment, that also means one important thing. Sound doctrine hangs on the love of God and neighbor. You can't truly have sound doctrine. You can't truly obey God if you don't love your neighbor, even if your neighbor is your enemy. Now look, God hates sin, but he doesn't hate sinners. He loves us, all of us, even the ones who reject him. 2 Peter 3 tells us that God doesn't want to lose anyone. And if we can't at least try to look at them the way he does, as people worth saving, even if they won't let him save them, then we're not doing what we were commanded to do. 
This is what's wrong in the Ephesian church. They have elevated sound doctrine above the love of their neighbors. They have failed to interpret all of the law and the prophets through the lens of love, and they have failed to emulate the way God loves us. How can a church tell someone that God hates them? They can only do that if they do not understand the love of God. How can a church celebrate loss and suffering? They can only do that if they don't know love. This is where the church at Ephesus went wrong. And remember, at no point did I say that sound doctrine was not important, because it is important. But if the message to the Ephesian church tells us anything, it's that sound doctrine does not, cannot trump the love of God and neighbor. We must never lose sound doctrine, and sound doctrine must always hang on love. Now, as I began to study the message to the seven churches, I realized that these messages were directed to all churches all the time, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the churches says directly to every church, don't ever forget that sound doctrine hangs on love. Don't ever lose that love. Love your neighbor as yourself. But the more I study Revelation, the more I realize that while this is a message to every church, it's also a message to every person. Jesus says to me, Don't ever forget that sound doctrine hangs on love. He says to each one of you, love God with all you have, love your neighbors yourself, and let that dictate how you act in this world. There are people out there who will choose to hate you because of your faith or your political beliefs or because of the color of your skin. There are people out there who won't find it sufficient to disagree with you. They may try to harm you or your reputation. Jesus warned us about such things. But he also told us that even those folks are our neighbors, and he wants us to love them. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to conjure gooey feelings for them out of nowhere. That's, that's not what true love is. True love is a decision of the will to treat people in a certain way. It's about how we think, speak, and act about and toward other people. It's a timely message for me. I have a major thorn in my side, a, a person who is decidedly a bad person, who has taken advantage of his position to wreak havoc on on people he doesn't like. He's unethical, he's racist and sexist, and he wields authority like a weapon, and he is my neighbor. It is a tremendous struggle in my soul to treat him with love. I have taken to praying for him, but I almost have to spit the words out like acid. So I'm not telling you all this love business because, hey, I'm a pastor and I'm perfect. I'm telling you all of this because we all need to hear it and do it in the practical places in our lives. I need to love this horrible person. (laughs) So this morning, we need to hear Jesus call to remember love, to remind us that sound doctrine hangs on love. We're all susceptible to forgetting this message, so Jesus reminds us, yes, hold on to your sound doctrine, especially in the face of opposition and suffering. But more than anything else, don't forget to love God and love your neighbor. It all hangs on love. Amen. All right. I want to pray for you. And as always, remember, God can hear you with your eyes open. So if you're listening while you're out and about, keep your eyes on what you're doing and just let your heart pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this time together, apart, but together in spirit with you. And we thank you for this reminder. There's so much hate out there. And when it's directed at us, it's, it's hard not to respond with hate of our own. But you don't. You love and you have called us to love. So help us love our neighbors, even the ones who make themselves our enemies, because we can't do that without your help. Thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. 
Amen. All right, thanks again for joining me. Next time we'll explore the second church in Revelation 2 and the message to the church at Smyrna.